was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure. Maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing. You get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. So how do you make peace with your decision to sell your company? I mean, how do you decide that you're ready to separate yourself from your business and go do something else? One of the things that we've learned is that the happiest owners are the ones that have something they're excited to go do next, which is exactly the situation my next guest, Scott Raymond, found himself into. He's a real estate guy by training and by love, and he got into the business of managing properties almost by accident when he couldn't find someone to manage the properties he's bought. So he never really loved the property management business. So when he was approached by a potential acquirer, he was only too happy to engage in those conversations. In this episode, you'll hear how he approached getting the acquirer to nudge up and improve their deal, both in terms of value as well as how he was gonna get paid his money. He'll talk about how he told his employees and structured that presentation so that it kind of cushioned the blow a little bit for them. He'll also talk about his earnout and the way he minimized his exposure to the ebbs and flows of an earnout. Here to tell you his entire story is Scott Raymond. Scott Raymond, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you so much. So you're in the property management business. I think everybody has a vision of property management. Now, this is going to date me, but mine goes back to Schneider. Do you remember the guy with the big key ring? <laughs> what show was that on? I think I had a crush on Valerie Bertinelli. Valerie, yeah, my okay. wife. I, I think I had a crush on her. I think we all and did. Schneider was the guy that went around and kind of managed the property. He was the maintenance right? man for the building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Super. So was that the business that you were in? Tell me more. Uh, that was certainly like, a guy like a guy like that would work, would have worked for me for sure. So we okay. would have managed the building for the owner, uh, for the owners, and we would have hired somebody like that to take care of the, to, you know, take care of things like changing ace, you know, locks, uh, dealing with maintenance issues. Yeah, guys like that, we had plenty of those employees. Okay, and so yeah. what was the business model? You would be uh, contracted by the building owner to manage Correct. the property. Is that right? Yeah, so we focus primarily on residential real estate, and that includes single-family homes, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes. Um, 10 unit buildings, 20 unit apartment buildings, and our largest was a 100 unit apartment community. Uh, we had a few commercial office buildings, but it was mostly residential rentals. I've and always so, wondered yeah. how, how, do, how do you sell your service? Because on the outset, one would assume that you know, managing your property through ABC company versus XYZ company, I mean, they're doing the same stuff. Right. What did you guys do to convince people to use you? 
Well, to be honest with you, I started, I started the business, my, the other side of my business is I'm a real estate investor. So I went out uh, in, the, in the post great recession and went out with some, some investor clients of mine and we acquired distressed real estate and fixed them up and sold some and held some. And it was during that process that I really started the management company almost by necessity because I wasn't happy with the kind of management companies that were out there. And I needed a certain level of control for my partners in the buildings that we were buying. And it was, it was only after maybe a year or two of just, just managing our own stuff that the real estate community, real estate agents that represented clients that were buying, uh, other property owners started to see what we were doing, <clears throat> like what we were doing and said, hey, would you consider managing for us as well? And, and what was it that you saw in those other property management companies that they weren't doing well? Well, there's an inherent conflict of interest in the property management business. <clears throat> you know, the property owner is looking to maximize revenue and, and minimize expenses. And depending on how the property management company operates their business model, they're trying to obviously maximize their revenue. And sometimes those, need, those things are in direct conflict. So the management company might not supervise a maintenance guy like Schneider as, as tightly as, as, as an owner would. And therefore, Schneider ends up building, building three or four hours when the job could have been one. Just small things like that. You, you follow it. me? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <clears throat> just, just, making, yeah, just making sure that, 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 that the properties are giving the attention that, that as, as, as if an owner would, would, would be managing them themselves. So we try to bridge that gap. If a management company is simply just trying to get as much revenue from the owners they can, which may not be in the owner's best interest, versus managing it like an owner would and still making a profit. How did, how does Airbnb impact your business? Because although you're doing some multi-unit, you're also doing some residential stuff. Was that an opportunity or a potential threat? What, what was your experience there? No, it was never a threat because it's not a big enough market uh, compared to the overall market for long-term rentals. Um, it's, a, it's a market that many of my owners came to me and said, hey, can you, can, let's say we had a 10-unit building. Can we, can we try to do Airbnb in one or two of those units? We considered doing it, but it's a whole nother ball of wax, you know, just in terms of the scheduling. It's, you know, our whole software platform was based for long-term rentals. It was really not based uh, to deal with the Airbnb uh, interface. There are companies out there that are doing Airbnb management services is third-party vendors between the owner and Airbnb. We just decided not to get into that space. Okay. So you're investing in, in, in properties after the Great Recession. So you're building up a portfolio, you're selling some, you're holding others. And then you're the ones you're holding, you're using your own, you're kind of eating your own dog foods, as they say, you're, you're, yeah. you're managing your own properties and then you're accumulating other properties along the way. How big did you get the property management business before you decided that you wanted to sell it? Like in terms of employees or yeah, it's, whatever it's good, you want to use? No, it's a good question. So at the time we sold, we had about four, 1,500 units under management. Uh, throughout uh, three or four regions in Northern California, with primarily in uh, most of the units were in Sacramento. We probably had 250 clients. So you got 1,500 units, 250 clients. The average client owned four units or five units, whatever the math is. Um, some just owned one, some owned 10, you know what I mean? Buildings and units. Mm -hmm. um, I had 23 employees, which included, um, don't quote me on the exact math, but probably 10 in the corporate office, um, you know, uh, and then the, 10, the, the other 13 were in the field, uh, combined with Schneider type maintenance guys that were roving the field. I love that. I love Schneider. I haven't thought about that name in 30 years. Um, and, uh, 
And then, and then on the larger communities where, where the law requires you to actually have, and, and the business requires you to actually have a, a manager on site because the building is large enough that it needs that kind of service, we would have employees that actually worked for us, but actually lived in those properties and serviced those properties. So tw- about 23 to 25 employees total. Great. And, and so what prompted you to think about selling? Well, um, my real passion is on the investment side, frankly. You know, I, I built a management company um, really out of necessity initially, and then it just kind of took a, a life of its own. And I did get a lot of satisfaction uh, growing a business, uh, set, the satisfaction of servicing clients well and being being appreciated, the satisfaction of building a, a real recognizable brand in the Sacramento region, um, uh, the satisfaction of watching margins go up, the satisfaction of changing employees' lives through offering healthcare and and uh, career advancement, and all that all that stuff was very satisfying. But at the but at the end, it didn't sat, really satisfy my core. My core was, was really in the investment side of things, and so I had a young I had a young mentor, a young protege, because I lived in Marin County, and mm. the, the primarily the primary business was in Sacramento County, and so I had a geographic issue for myself. So for those I, that don't know California, roughly kind of how, how many hour drive would it it's be? About, from Marin? It's about an hour fifteen to hour thirty. Okay. So not yeah, something you want to do every day, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, so in the beginning stages, I had a young, I had a young guy just, uh, you know, just out of school, had his real estate license, and I saw an opportunity to kind of give, to kind of make him my local Sacramento presence. I mentored him basically throughout the entire uh, cycle of our business, and he still had, you know, he's by the time we sold, he was about thirty. I'm fifty. Um, he obviously had a lot of life left in him and wanted to keep rolling with the company. And we were we were starting to look at a succession plan, but we couldn't really figure one out. You know. Um, does he buy me out? Uh, do I just uh, uh, get residual cash flow and, and sail off into the sunset? You know, none of these things really, really stuck. Um, so it wasn't until just really we were approached by some companies that were trying to expand their management presence that we uh, that really we really decided to sell. We hadn't actively gone out and put the property uh, the business up for sale. Why would the negotiation not negotiate conversations I should call them with your protege? Um, so difficult. What, what, how did, why was it difficult for you to find a, a solution with him? You know, I don't want to say it was insurmountable or impossible. Uh, frankly, we would have probably found a solution that worked for both of us. Um, it's just these other companies approached us right in the middle of that. And it was a much easier uh, exit for me. It, it gave me much more um, of what I wanted. Um, it was just, I think a lot of people listening, Scott would be like, wow, that's so incredible that you get, you get approached by an acquirer. Like, what do I have to do to, you know, tart myself up, make myself sexy enough that people will actually come to me? So, like, how did they find you? The, these other potential acquirers. Like, how did they come to know of? Yeah, you? good question. Um, you know, we were pretty in building our brand. We were pretty successful at PR. We got a lot of, you know, if we took on a new project or we were responsible for. Uh, some uh, dramatic remodel of a building because that was part of our services too for our clients. We would we would do very well to get press out there. And my my partner was very good at social media. We were first page Google search for property managers in, in certain markets in, in Northern California. We were on book of lists for the local business journals and these sorts of things. So when these companies came, when these companies decided they wanted to start acquiring, it was pretty easy for them to see who were the top companies in those markets. And we were certainly one of them. And so you were approached, uh, under what sort of conditions were you approached? Was it under the guise of let's have a, 
a peer-to-peer conversation? Did they use the word strategic? Did they come right out and say, we want to buy you? Like, how did they sort of couch the conversation in the beginning? Oh, it's uh, the memory is a little bit vague on the initial conversations, but it was something like a phone call. Hey, we're, you know, we're in the market to acquire management. Would you consider selling? I mean, it was a pretty, pretty basic, right, right between the eyes kind of pitch, which I like. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm not one to mince words. And so that, and- that, that was followed up by a, by a launch and then some, some more discussions and then an LOI and then off to the races. God, I want to get into all that. So, so you have uh, this conversation and, and what made you decide these guys were legit? Because a lot of our listeners would get those calls all the time, right? And sometimes they're real. Other times they're, they're a bit shaky. They're, you know, there's some investor who thinks he can put, cobble together some yes, money. But, right. you know, there's, you know it, how did you know these guys were serious? That's an easy one. Um, and unfortunately, it probably won't translate to a lot of what your, uh, what your listeners um, would experience. The company that came to us was a company that was um, founded by two pretty well-known entrepreneurs that had already um, had already built a company and took it public. Mm-hmm. And now this was their next this was their next mountain to climb. So very recognizable um, guys in the in 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 the, in the business world in the real estate world. Furthermore, they were backed by some pretty substantial venture capitalists. And so we obviously we went and met with them a number of times. We talked to other companies that have been bought by them, and we talked to their VC guys as well. So we had. A- and, and this company you're referring to is called Mind. That's is that correct. correct. Yeah. Okay. And it's spelled a bit funny. It's M Y N D as opposed to the true. That's correct. Mind. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So mind approaches you, these kind of all-star entrepreneurs on the end, end of it. So you figure they're legit. What, what did, did you have any sense of what you thought the management company was worth? Yeah. So when I, when I started, and this might be helpful for the listeners too, when I started, uh, when, when I made the decision to start my own management company, um, before I did that, I actually went out to try to possibly acquire some because I didn't know how long it was going to take to organically grow my company to profitability. And so, you know, I had some capital resources and I went out to a couple other companies and to, to do what mine did with me. This was 10 years ago, right? So I went out and approached a couple other companies to see if I could buy them. And during that process, um, we got pretty close with one of them, close enough that we did, we did a business appraisal. And during that business appraisal, I was able to really look under the hood on how a business appraiser was looking at their, their business. Uh, the owner of that business wanted far more than I was willing to pay, far more than the appraiser gave him value for. So that never went anywhere. But that was that was my, kind of my first glimpse into how to value my type of business. And then um, throughout the course of the 10 years that I built Raymond Management, we had acquired a couple of other small, when I say small companies, the way property management companies generally do, do M&As is a new company will not necessarily buy my, they're not going to buy my corporation. They're not going to buy the shares of my S Corp, you know what they're going to do is they're going to buy the rights to my management contracts. Right. So like I still own the name Raymond management. Uh, I still, my S corp is still active. If I ever want to do something else with it, even though I'm under a non-compete, they really just bought the, in most, most companies in the space buy the contracts, the rights to the contracts. Yeah. In, in, in other industries, it, it often comes down to the difference between buying assets and shares correct. of a company. In your case, it sounds like they bought the assets they bought the, uh, as opposed to the, the yep. shares. Exactly. Um, for those so, listening, so, well, to finish to finish that thought. So yeah, yeah so, it, so, so yeah, so I bought a couple of smaller smaller portfolios, hundred units here, you know, fifty units there from from small independent one off property management managers who were looking to retire. And so I had a little bit of an experience of doing M and A's from the from the buyer side as well, and kind of seeing what other management companies thought their companies were worth. So I had I had a pretty good idea. 
Okay, excellent. And so how are they valued? What, what is the, the formula by which you value a property management company? Um, so we also had, a, we had another buyer um, looking at us, which is important for your listeners. Uh, when, when, when we were approached by Mind, we also we went out into the market to see if there were any other companies like them that we're looking to acquire because we wanted to get two people bidding for us. And anybody considering selling, I would, I would try, try to do the same thing. Obviously, two buyers is better than one for your price. Um, I only bring that up, uh, I bring that up for that point, but I also bring it up because both of these companies looked at valuation differently. Um, mine was looking at uh, EBITDA. You know, they were looking at, um, I'm sorry, they were looking at really gross. They were looking at gross management fee. Um, and they, they, you know, they were looking at a gross multiple on, on annual contracted revenue, whereas the other company was looking more at a multiple on, uh, on earnings. Got it. Got so it. They and wanted what, to, you know, and what what were you thinking was a fair multiple of either EBITDA or revenue, depending on where, how were you own, you you and your partner thinking of what was a a reasonable kind of multiple? Yeah, without getting into the details of my exact transaction, what we were seeing from the marketplace was gross multiples between one and two, mm-hmm. and we were seeing earning uh, EBITDA multiples between three and seven. Got it. Got it. And when you say one to two, you're referring to one to two times gross management Correct. fees or Correct. revenue is in the way saying. Got it. Got it. Or three to seven times EBITDA. Of course, EBITDA stands for earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, amortization, yeah. kind of yeah. pre-tax profit in a way. And so those were the numbers you were working with in your own mind. Um, and the, the offers that you got, I'm assuming were sort of in that range. You felt that they were fair based on what you were experiencing. Um, yeah, initially, initially they, they weren't. And, uh, so the negotiation stalled for quite a bit, but, um, ultimately we, you know, we, I think we came around and ultimately, we ultimately got a deal done. So I think that, uh, both sides thought it was a win-win. What stalled the negotiation? You know, um, you know, mainly valuation in terms, you know, um, we were looking for, uh, we were looking for an all cash deal. Um, and a lot of companies in the space weren't wanting to do cash deals. They wanted to do part cash, part shares in their company, uh, drag the, uh, the sale, uh, the, the stale sale installments out over time. And then, and then ultimately the price. And so those, those were kind of the main thing. And then, and then, you know, which revenue we were getting credit for, you know, the primary revenue for a management company is the monthly management fee, you know, uh, if you have a house that uh, you and your wife are renting and you hire my company, I'm going to charge you hundred bucks a month, roughly, you know, that's 1200 bucks a year. That's the, that's the bread and butter where we make a, where we make a bunch of ancillary revenue is um, if the house goes vacant, we have to lease it up. We charge a commission for that. Um, if, if, uh, if a water heater blows out, uh, we got to send a guy out. We make a markup on that, on that maintenance guy for scheduling him. Um, we keep late fees if your tenant pays late. So oh, there's all these different fees that we earn that, that can really, really add up over time. Um, we like, let's say you and your wife wanted to sell sometimes clients where we were managing for would let us sell them as well. So we'd get the commission on the brokerage uh, opportunity. And so it was a matter of, of negotiating which of those income streams were going to get valued into the, into the multiple equation as well. Wouldn't they all be valued as part of the equation? No, because the, you know, what the, what the companies that are trying to acquire in my space are looking for is that sticky recurring revenue. So they don't want, you know, so the leasing commission, for example, if somebody, if I lease your house out, that person may not move for five years. So we can't, I can't guarantee when the next time is I'm going to earn that leasing commission. Your tenants and may never pay late. So I, I can't guarantee when that late fee is going to come in. 
Got it. Got it. When you did deals with customers, I'm assuming you would sign a contract of some sort, a management yeah. contract. Right. What duration were those contracts? Uh, you, generally one year. We played around with one-year contracts and month-to-month contracts. The, value, the, the benefit of the month-to-month contract, easier to fire a bad client, easier to make changes to your terms to adjust to the market or to your own, your own margin requirements, um, but much more uh, transitory risk of clients uh, leaving and firing you. Uh, the one-year contract provide a little more stability, but that's the problem with, with, with the management companies, you know, and that's why multiples may not be as high as other types of businesses that have stickier longer-term relationships. You know, a company that acquires my contracts, at the most, it's going to get a guarantee of a year's worth of contractual revenue. But if they, uh, if they don't end up providing, or, you know, good enough service or the same quality service my customers were expecting, they, then, then that client may not renew at the end of that year. And so they just... Uh, you know, they just paid me for a year's worth of revenue. They just basically paid for a year's worth of revenue. Got it. So let's get back to the negotiation itself. So you're, you're, you're in the thread. You got, you got two kind of potential suitors. Uh, your first is, is not meeting your expectations on either points, either, you know, gross value, you know, valuation or terms. So I think a lot of our listeners would, would really resonate with, that experience or that situation where they've got a, an offer, maybe they get lowballed and and feel like they're not just they're not getting value for what they've created. What's the secret to kind of nudging the acquire up without being so standoffish that you kind of piss them off or or you know they they turn away and say this guy's totally unreasonable? Yeah, you know, um, assuming you get con- so you get contacted by somebody who wants to buy your company and assuming you've, you've, you've done some level of vending and you feel comfortable with these guys, you sign a non-disclosure agreement, a confidentiality agreement. The first thing, it, well, first of all, it starts with good books. You got to have good books. You know, you got to have really, really tight financials. You know, you can't, uh, like I looked at a, <laughs> I looked at a company the other day um, on behalf of, uh, of, uh, of mind to, um, to acquire. And the guy was only booking a half year's worth of his revenue. He was taking the other half under the table for tax purposes. You know what I mean? That guy's not going to get a good price for his company. So you got to have, yeah, you got to have a, yeah, you got to have good, good books. Um, and so if I'm trying to get them to value all of my different revenue streams, then I want to have two, three solid years of historicals to show them what the averaged out over those three years. So I want to make the case as tightly as possible in financials of how much money I'm making and how sticky and continuous that revenue is. Um, it starts with that. You know, I, I know a lot of owners may get calls and they, they don't want to, if the guy's not serious, the buy, if they don't believe the buyer's serious, they're not going to want to just start throwing financials out to just anybody. So I get that. I get there's a reluctance to share your information. But once you can get over that hump, um, it's, that's really how you choose the valuation is to really, really get into the hood of your financials with the buyer and, and make your case of, of, you know, why perhaps your company is worth a higher multiple than the guy next door because of um, longer term clients or higher end properties or more loyalty or better brand recognition or, you know, whatever. You're trying to make this case almost, it sounds almost like a, a lawyer would make a legal argument in front of a jury. Yeah, kind of. You're yeah, trying to yeah. plead your case. You're selling your business, you know, even though I got approached, I went into full on sales mode, you know, like I was selling my services to a part, part of selling um, is really 
I, I go back to Neil Rackham and spill, spend selling or, or you know, Xerox sales training where you, where you find, kind of find out what the customer wants and then provide them with that solution. Um, were, you, were you capturing what they were interested in, what their you know, hot buttons were? Like, how did you kind of go about diagnosing their situation? Yeah, you know, the property management business is not a high margin business and their approach to it was to try to squeeze margins out of more efficient um, uh, deployment of personnel through the use of technology. So they're really taking a heavy technology approach. And so for me, the sales pitch was really about how efficiently I was running the business, how I, how, how I was able to manage perhaps more units per person, per employee than, than the average management company. How we were able to use technology to dispatch maintenance guys more efficiently. Um, you know, these sorts of things. So I really, yeah. Doesn't that kind of make the opposite argument though? Meaning there was, you were already so efficient and squeezing so much juice that there wasn't much incremental they could squeeze if they bought you guys. No, it's a good, it's a good point. Um, But they still, they had some other technology that we didn't. They had some proprietary technology that was going to allow them to squeeze out even more margins. What they liked about us specifically is they didn't have any exposure in in Sacramento and we were a pretty, pretty major regional player. And so this was, so they could just come in and plug and play with us. You know, they didn't have to hire a bunch of new employees or what have. It was really just a really synergistic move for them. Got it. So you were approached by mine, but then you did a great job of getting a, a second offer on the table. How did you get that second offer? Like, what was your pitch to the second company to, to bring them to the table? Uh, frankly, I'm surprised they didn't approach us um, because they were out actively looking for companies as well, similar strategy to, to mine. Um, we had just heard about them through the trades that they were out trying to do the similar thing. So we just called their CEO and said, hey, look, we're in play. Um, you want to come to the table? And what was their reaction? Yes. <laughs> we're interested. Send us your financial. Where did it go from there? Um, we got really close. I mean, at the end of the day, it was, a, it was, um, it was almost a coin flip to be honest with you. Um, but at the end of the day, I felt that um, I felt what mine offered uh, my partner, because I was going to sail off into the sunset uh, for the most part, but what, uh, what mine offered my partner and my employees was a better cultural and long-term career fit. I'd love to talk about employees because you had in your own admission sort of 25 employees, many of whom you were I, I was reading between the lines, correct me if I'm wrong, but, but you felt like you were giving them an opportunity that maybe they wouldn't have had without your company uh, in some cases. Yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe That's talk correct. a little bit about the, the team you built and, and then how you, you, you sort of shared the news with them and involved them in the process. Yes. You know, um, the, uh, I was a big proponent of hiring from within. You know, and so we would, we would, um, there's, there's a lot of very uh, basic kind of menial tasks that are required for a property management company. And so when you're going out and you're hiring people, you may be hiring people that don't have college degrees. You may be hiring people that are new to the, to the workforce, uh, maybe don't have a tremendous amount of skill sets, but, but they can satisfy kind of the basic lower level requirements of a management company's needs. And then when you see their, their work ethic, their, their reliability, their, their skill set, their intelligence, as, as other opportunities uh, present themselves, you have great opportunities to move them up through the, through the company. And that happened to a number of my employees. And um, well, they started out in very, very basic tasks, tasks and ended up in pretty serious critical path tasks, uh, positions for my company. And that builds a lot of loyalty, you know, and a lot of trust between you and the employees. 
Um, and that's why it made it really, really hard. You know, um, we had set up a pretty, a pretty friendly, loving family type culture with Raymond management. And now I had to break the news that they were going to be going into a company that had plans to take over the world, you know, um, based in another city. And so, you know, I did the, you know, I did, I did it the best I could with multiple kind of, kind of group presentations and I brought the new, the new guys in and let them kind of introduce themselves to everybody. We had a lot of offsite, you know, kind of team building, combined team building uh, experiences. And in the transition, I think we only lost one, one employee that said, I'm, I'm not, uh, um, I came to work for you, Scott. I don't want to work for these other guys. Uh, that only happened one time. What was your timing around telling them? Like, did, was, did you have the check in hand from mine by the time you told them or did you tell yeah, them? Yeah, good question. To- yeah, we, we pretty much did. We pretty much did. Uh, because I didn't want, um, because as, as much as, as you, you tell people to keep their, their mouths shut on, on, on this, because there was a sequence. I had to tell the employees and I also had to tell my clients. And I wanted to tell the employees before I told my clients because I didn't want the word to get out to my clients, um, you know, before I had a chance to tell them. And so uh, the sequence was very important. I wanted to make sure I had a contract check in hand. Then I told the employees Then I told the clients and that happened. And what was the reaction of employees? Um, a lot of shock and awe, <laughs> you know, um, uh, a lot of nervousness. It happened around the holiday time too. Um, it was, uh, it was, it was the holidays uh, 2000 at the end of 2018. So in some ways that was a good time because everybody was kind of winding down for the year, getting into happy family mode. Um, you know, and our business kind of slows down a lot during that time. So that was, that was a good time, but it was a lot of handholding. A lot of things are going to be good. I'm going to still be involved. And I was, I was involved very, very carefully, very much in the transition for the first year. If you handholding. Could, yeah. Uh, I was just going to ask you, uh, if you could redo that announcement meeting, if, if you had a mulligan and you could, you could have a do-over where you brought everyone together and shared the news, what might you do differently? I think we pulled it off uh, as, I, as best I could, honestly, in hindsight. You know, we rented out a, we rented out a big kind of co-working space. We had a presentation. Dan and I uh, created this uh, slideshow that, that started, you know, took us back to the, some of the beginnings when it was just Dan and I working out of basically a, a condo unit. Um, all the way up to, you know, 23 employees and, you know, hundreds of clients and, and great brand recognition. And then, and then we transitioned into, okay, where do we go from here? So it was really a beautiful, well done, you know, empathetic, um, you know, um, compassionate presentation um, with a lunch afterwards and a lot of Q&A. And then even a, and then a second one, a second one where we brought the new guys in and, and, and just kind of carried on with that. And it always made my office open for questions and, and these sorts of things. Um, you know, the other thing that helped, which was part of the negotiations, is that the employees, nothing was going to really change right away for the employees. Um, their comp was going to, uh, if anything, it was going to go up. They got better health care. Uh, they got some better perks. They certainly got better career advancement because I'd really taken the company as far as I could take it or wanted to take it. And so all those things helped a lot um, in getting them over the um, – the initial fear of change. What was the reaction on customers? Uh, some, some, some reluctance and some, some, some concern of like, okay, Scott, we'll see how it goes. 
you know, we hired you. We hired you because we like you. We hired you because we know when we call you, you're always going to answer the phone and take care of our problems. Um, and so we'll just, we'll, we're happy for you. We want the best for you. And if this is the move that you need to make, Scott, then that's good. Um, but we're going to watch very carefully that, that the balls don't get dropped uh, in this transition. You mentioned uh, that you were trying to get as much of your money up up front. I'm assuming there was some element of earnout that you had to accept or, or, yeah. or transition. Can you give us a sense of how big a nut that was for you? Yeah, without getting into my specific details, it's uh, um, it was the earnout was a, was an important negotiating point because um, obviously the buyer wants as uh, little as an earnout, or um, what they refer to as churn, a churn penalty. Like if you lose clients, how does that affect the final valuation? They want that to be as big as possible. They want um, and they want the earnout to be as low as possible. And you want the opposite. And so that's a big, big negotiation, and one that the, your listeners should pay very, very close attention to. And lawyers can be super helpful for that. Um, because what ends up happening is, even though my employees are still are still servicing the, the needs of the clients post sale, and I'm still involved from a client relations standpoint, we are losing a certain amount of control over the service. It's now a new way of doing business. And so there's certain aspects that I don't have control over anymore. And if a client leaves because they're unsatisfied with the new way of things, that, that, that isn't necessarily anything I was responsible for. So how, how much should I get penalized for that is a very negotiable point. Yeah. What, what proportion of a, of, of a total deal, total sale of a company would you say is, is sort of reasonable to expect an earn out for versus what, what would you say was, is too much for, yeah. for, for a family? In, in my industry, it's uh, anywhere from uh, 10%, uh, 10% to 50%. Um, 10 to 50. That's a big range. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's what I've seen in, in negotiations. And when you're talking, so I don't know if we're talking about the same thing. So uh, when I, when I think of earnout, I'm thinking of, um, I'm thinking of, uh, what I was able to, to negotiate was, a, was, was any new business because we had a pretty, we had a pretty powerful organic lead generating pipeline. And so I wanted to get credit for that in, in valuation for some period of time. So that was negotiated into it. And then, um, any client loss, um, I negotiated a floor on that. And that's where my 10 to 50% comes in. It could be as little as 10, like if they buy a hundred contracts, um, a good deal for the seller would be if you lost one of those contracts or 10%, that's the maximum they could take off the price. A bad deal for the seller would be 55 contracts out of that, that example. That would be, you know, where, you, where your valuation was cut in half basically because you lost Got those it. clients in the, in the transition. And that, that churn usually lasts a year. Yeah. So if you yeah. can know, if you can negotiate a shorter churn, like three months or six months, that's great. And if you can negotiate a churn somewhere, you know, somewhere between ten and twenty percent, I think you're doing well. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And of course, that's that that varies quite a bit by industry. We've seen some industries, uh, marketing communications, where the earnout can be you know, multi you know, multi five years, I've you know, seven years. I've heard in yeah. one case, nice. typically three years. So so it's it it will vary depending on the industry. But that's helpful to know kind of what you think is a reasonable proportion. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, Scott, is is your name was on the door, right? Yeah. Like it was yeah. it was Raymond Management, um, and you're Scott Raymond. You're the Raymond. Right. Uh, how how did the acquire uh, react to that? That your name was on the door. 
Uh, I don't think they were caught up in one way or the other about my name being on the door because their strategy is to, is to rebrand um, in, in any company that they acquire. Um, I think they were, they were more impressed with what that brand, rec- what that brand um, represented in the marketplace. You know, um, our name was associated with quality properties, quality services, um, was very recognizable uh, logo and colors. One of the thing, one of the unique things about property management is when we have a new building that we manage, we immediately put a sign in front of the building. Even if we're not trying to lease it, even if it's fully vacant, we'll put the sign there just to let people know. So we had, we had these little billboards all over town. And so uh, we got a lot of business from that as well. Um, so yeah, they, th- that name wasn't, wasn't that, wasn't that important one way or the other for them where, where, where it is important is when you've got an organic lead generating pipeline, social media, internet, Yelp, these kinds of things. That's where a lot of our leads came through. It's very it's very important how you manage that kind of social media online transition. You know, we were getting probably five leads a week from Yelp, right? Hmm. Well, you don't want to just shut down your Yelp uh, the minute you close. And so, but yet they need the leads to start going through their Salesforce system. And so you've got to, you've got to really think through how that's going to work. You know, how much do you, do you do a co-branding thing? Do you keep, do, do I keep the website up and do I keep my Yelp up and do I keep my, my Google AdWords up uh, without any changes or do I start to incorporate their name or do you just go cold turkey brand right to their, right to their systems, which I wouldn't recommend because then you lose all your organic leads. It's, so. It sounds like you're, you're advocating for and what you did in your case was a more gradual sort yeah, of, definitely. you know, shifting the equity. Honestly, as, gra- as gradual as you can. Yeah. How did you, personally feel about their decision to rebrand you know i didn't i never um in hindsight i, pr- I probably wouldn't sh- wouldn't have named it after my last name you know uh, there was really no ego tied up in that it was just uh, really almost lazy you know uh having to think of some creative creative name uh it was just easier to go with my name so i didn't really have any ego tied up in my name honestly and so i had no problem i had no problem with those signs going away <laughs> It's been a year, I guess, or so since the transaction went through. Yeah. How's the decision sitting with you now, a year on? Couldn't be, uh, couldn't be more thrilled. Yeah. Why? Um, I think we made the right choice with this company. I think the, uh, I think the employees are happy. I think the clients are being serviced. Um, I've gotten myself personally to exactly where I wanted to be. Um, where is that? You know, um, not not involved in the management company, frankly, anymore, but knowing that my employees or clients are being cared for. What was it about that sense of, of uh, freedom? If you, you know, maybe I'll use that. What, why was that so important to you? What, what, what is it that that feeling of freedom is giving you? You know, the management business is a very, um, maintenance intensive business in terms of managing clients. You know, you've got uh, on any given day, you've got uh, owners calling you about reports that they can't understand or toilet or tenants calling you with toilets that don't flush. You know what I mean? Or it's just one of these things, you know, employees that are trying to get vacations or want their next raise or, um, or dealing with issues with other employees. You know, these are daily things. Um, Those kinds of, I'm not an ops guy. I'm not an operations guy. Those things don't, um, don't fire me up in the morning. What fires me up in the morning is, uh, is, is looking at real estate deals and buying real estate deals and rehabbing real estate deals. And um, so, so that's what the, you know, so stepping away from the management company um, just gave me the freedom to do that and not, 
uh, yeah, and not really have to deal with a, I'm, I'm not, like I said, I'm not an operations guy and management companies are very operations intensive. Yeah, no, it, uh, it sounds like a great fit for you and, and yeah. onward. Where, where are you now? If, if, uh, if, if people want to reach out to you uh, to say hi on social media, for example, do you, are you doing, can I LinkedIn okay or Twitter or what's the best way? Yeah, to- I'm on LinkedIn. Um, Scott Kelly Raymond. Uh, I've got an Instagram, Scott K. Raymond. Uh, they can reach out to me either of those two places. Um, I'm also on Facebook at Scott K. Raymond. Um, and so what I'm really focused on now is uh, just doing real estate investing, uh, but I'm also writing a book on, on oh, really? really the last 10 years. Um, and I'm working with some publishers on, on kind of the direction of the book. It's going to be sort of a, sort of a how-to, real estate investors how-to manual, you know, for the really kind of advanced investment, like how I, how I built up a portfolio uh, after the Great Recession and built a management company. So it's got kind of this entrepreneur wags to riches kind of backstory, but it's really primarily like detailed real estate how-to investing. Fantastic. And I have to ask just out of curiosity, not because it's related to our show per se, but um, you know, are the days of, of outsized real estate uh, opportunities beyond us? I mean, they're never going to be another great recession, hopefully anytime in our lifetime. Or, or is that opportunity you know, passed us by? Uh, I've seen... I've seen, I've seen what I'm going to call two gen, kind of generational real estate opportunities uh, in my life. And I've been following real estate since I got out of college uh, in the uh, early 90s. Uh, the first was the SNL crisis of the early 90s. Savings um, and loans crisis. The savings and loan crisis. And it was during that time where you had an absolute complete destruction of real estate value across the country. Um, you had a credit system that was, a, was fundamentally flawed and real estate got crushed. That was a tremendous, tremendous, you know, once in a generation buying opportunity. The next one was the Great Recession. Everything in between were just kind of minor, you know, the dot-com bubble, this, that, or the other. Or, you know, you can, find, you can find good buying opportunities in those markets, but the like once-in-a-lifetime opportunities, the SNL crisis in the early 90s and the Great Recession in 07 and 08, there's going to be another one because because people forget about the past and lenders get a little too aggressive and, and, and credit credit markets get out of whack and real estate prices get out of whack. But I can't tell you if it's going to be, I mean, we're already 10 years past the Great Recession right. and those yeah. signs of it. The lending systems are much better than they were um, back in 2007, but human nature works in cycles, you know, and uh, there will be another one, but it may not be for another 10 years, you know, and well, so- Right now, yeah. I, for example, I haven't bought anything. I haven't bought anything of any substance in really two years because I haven't seen I haven't seen the values. Well, we'll look forward to the secret sauce in the book. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Hopefully, I'll get it done this year. Uh, Scott, I appreciate you taking the time to spend with our listeners. Thanks for doing it. Wonderful. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.